Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 33, Genesis chapter 33, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, you notice that we're taking our time as we study through the book of Genesis, but not only Genesis, but also through the life of Jacob. God is working in the life of Jacob. God is working in that generation, and God is working in this generation. God is looking for a generation that seeks his face. And here we see that he's making Jacob the kind of man that he needs him to be. That, that Jacob is a man in progress. That Jacob is a work in progress. And how many of us know even here tonight, we all are a work of progress in the hands of God. Amen? God is still working in us. God, by his grace, is still dealing with us. And God had to deal with Jacob before he came back to the promised land. As Jacob left Laban, his father-in-law, who schemed him and cheated him and did him wrongly, as he's coming back now, as he's going through the wilderness, God dealt with Jacob. And God is so faithful to do that as he prepares us for that next season that he has for us before we go back or before we enter into the land of promise, into the place of blessing, at the place where God has told us that he will use us and bless us and prepare a way for us, he first deals with us. Because before God prepares a place, I want you to know this, he also prepares a person. He also prepares his servant. And we see there that God wrestled with Jacob. This was the first wrestling match in the Bible. God wrestled with Jacob. It wasn't that Jacob was wrestling with God. God was wrestling with him in Genesis 32 because he came to take something from Jacob. And the problem that happened there is that Jacob would not surrender it. It's the very problem that we find ourselves in sometimes even in our own lives, that we're unwilling to give it up that we're unwilling to surrender or to submit to God. So God must by force take that from him. And that's why he wrestles with him. He must by force take away the self-will from Jacob. He, he must by force he take away the self-confidence in Jacob's life, the, the pride that Jacob was struggling with, the stubbornness, the striving, the scheming of Jacob, the, the sin in Jacob's life. God had to come and take it from him by force. You know what Jacob needed? He needed to be broken. Because after he was broken, then God can make him new. After his plan was broken, after his will was broken, after his pride was broken, then God can do something new in his life. And he didn't know that that was the case. But let me tell you this, he was about to find out that God needed to deal with him. So what does he do? The Lord take, took away or he took the, the hip out of the socket in, in Jacob's life. He, he dislocated the hip. A very painful thing as we think about. That God had to do that for him to, to make him lean on the Lord and not lean on his own strength. Symbolic of how God oftentimes painfully has to deal with us to remove the very thing that we're depending upon so that we can depend on him. 
And sometimes God says, I need to dislocate that. I need to break that because you're in love with that too much. And now you need to learn to depend on me. You're leaning on that program. You're leaning on that plan. You're leaning on that person. You're leaning on that system. And I want you to deal on and, and, and rely on me, depend on me. Therefore, I need to dislocate that. And you know now what Jacob cannot do? He cannot run as he's used to doing. So God slows him down. And he's learning to lean on the Lord. He's learning to depend on the Lord. He's now clinging on the Lord now. Where the Lord tells him, now let me go. And he's holding on to him. He's clinging on him. He, he goes from wrestling to resting. And now do you want to know what the, the strength now here in his life is? It, the strength in the life of Jacob is that limp. That he starts to limp, as it would say there in chapter 33, because he was constantly reminded that God had conquered him. And that he had to depend on God to take him through. And God sometimes uses that very weakness in our life to remind us, this is your strength. Because it's constantly reminding you that you need to depend on me. And what does he tell him at the end of chapter 32 of Genesis? Jacob, I'm changing your name to Israel. And God changes his name because he's changing him. He changes the name. He, he was called deceiver. Now he's called Israel, which means governed by God. Before he was called and identified as a man that lived for the flesh, now he's identified as a man who's governed by God. He had to learn to be under the authority of God, governed by God. In fact, we titled the message tonight, Governed by God. If you like taking notes, would you note that today, Governed by God. What is he learning? He's learning to live under God's authority. Because we must first learn to live under God's authority. God can't trust someone with his power until they're first submitted to him. And here he is submitting Jacob. He's saying, Jacob, you are to be under my submission. You're under to be under my authority. You are to live up to your new name. And I want to tell you today, you are to live up to your new name as well. Your new name is redeemed, chosen, called by God. This world, this culture, this generation has a problem with identity. But I want you to know, you, you should not have that problem as a Christian. You should open up your Bible and you know who you are in Christ Jesus. You are in him. You are a child of God. That's who we are. And you see here that his name has changed, but notice he's still struggling with the old man. He, he's still struggling with who he used to be. In fact, sometimes God pulls us out of the world, but we're still struggling with what he took us out of. In fact, if you read scripture through the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see that when God changed Abram's life to Abraham, never was his old name ever mentioned again. He, the old name was never used again. When God changed Saul's name to Paul, Saul's old name was no longer used again. When God changed Simon's name to Peter, it was almost exclusively in Scripture that he used the name of Peter. But here in Genesis, you know what happens beyond this point? That Jacob's name is used again 45 times. And it's only 23 times that the name of Israel is used to describe him. 
You know what this highlights, what this reminds us? That it indicates that even after he has this mountaintop experience with God, he continues to fall back in his old self. He continues to go back to what he was struggling with. He has now lived up to his new name. And you know what he's doing now? He's going back to meet Esau, his brother. They had been separated. They had a falling out for 20 years. And here in this chapter, you see that God works in that relationship so that there is forgiveness and so that there's reconciliation. I think it's important that we ask ourselves, are there any relationships where we need to reconcile through forgiveness? And you know what destroyed the unity here in this relationship? The same thing that destroys relationships today, and that's pride. Pride is so destructive. Pride is, is at the center of every sin. It is something that we should not want to be associated with pride and it's interesting we talk about that today because the world celebrates the culture in sin they celebrate what this month pride month (laughs) but you open the bible and you start to find out that anything to do with pride has to do with the sin god does not honor pride in any way pride is the essence of sin it is nothing that we should be proud about In fact, you know what we should do every day? Die to our pride every single day. Crucify our pride and our sin and our sin nature to the cross. You know what pride is? It's an elevated view of self. It's saying, I'm taking the glory of God for myself. It's been said that pride is the cancer to the soul, that it destroys you from the inside out. And sometimes you don't even realize it because you're the last one to notice how prideful you really are. Sometimes we think that everyone else is the problem and it's their pride, it's their selfishness, it's their ego, but God shows us it's also yours. I like what C.S. Lewis said when it comes to pride. He says, the more pride we have, the more other people's pride irritate us. Think about, sometimes, what you're so prideful. Well, it's your own pride that's irritating you in someone else's life. Alan Redpath said it this way, the essence of sin is arrogance and the essence of salvation is submission, where we submit to the Lord. The Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and an oddy spirit, a proudful, arrogant spirit before the fall. What does pride do as well? It divides. It divides families. It divides relationships. It can even divide a church. Pride, Proverbs 13, 10, by pride it comes nothing but strife. If you are proud, you know what we need to do today? Humble ourselves so that God can give us reconciliation, so that God can give us restoration. Walk in the Spirit, Ephesians 4, 3. What does he say? Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Have you noticed that in scripture, it doesn't say that you are to create unity. You know what it says about unity? We are to keep unity. That means that if we're all walking in the spirit, naturally we will have unity. So it says, endeavor to walk worthy and to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here we're gonna see how there's a reconciliation by the work of God in the life of Jacob and Esau. Let's read there Genesis 31, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, 
And there was Esau coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and the children in front of Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed them, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children, and he said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now we see something very important here that there is a pursuit to reconciliation. Jacob had prayed the right prayer, but his heart was in the wrong place. And he's looking here to make things right with his brother. I think it's important as we read this chapter that we would aim, we would pursue to make things right with those people we've wronged to those people where there's division. That we would keep short accounts with our brothers and sisters. That we would keep short accounts with God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is speaking and teaching and he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, what does he say? Leave that gift there. Go make things right with your brother first and then come and offer that gift before the Lord. Because God is looking at your heart before he's looking at what you bring in your hands. God wants us to pursue reconciliation. God's desire is that we would forgive one another so that we can have unity, so that we can have healing, so that there'd be an evidence of love within the church. In fact, even the apostle John, he said it that way. He said, if you say that you love God who you can't see, how can you say that you, can, that, that you can't love your brother who's right in front of you? Sometimes we say, you know what, I, I love God and I can't see him. But you can't love your brother who you can't see? He said, you're lying, you're not walking in the truth. And here we see that Jacob is now going to see Esau and notice what happens because he lifts his eyes, verse one, and he looked and there Esau was coming there with 400 men. This is exactly what his servants told Jacob as they went first to look for Esau. And it had been 20 years since he had seen him, but here now Jacob is a new man, but here's an old situation. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're saying, well, you know what, well, I'm a new person, but I still have to deal with the consequences of my past sin. The consequences of sin are still oftentimes lingering in our lives. And oftentimes we have to deal with them so that we can move on, even if it's difficult. God has us deal with those things. You know, it's been said before that when we become a Christian, we're no longer clinging to sin, but sin still wants to cling to us. And how true is that? When we come to Christ, we no longer cling to sin, but sin wants to cling to us. I think that's why the apostle said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, since we're surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, what does he say? Let us lay aside the weight and let us lay aside the sin 
that so easily ensnares us or slows us down. And let us run this race with endurance, the race that is set before us. What are we to do? Lay aside anything that so easily ensnares us. And there now, Jacob is facing Esau. He's coming to Esau, but he's afraid. There's a little bit of shame here. There's some guilt here because he left the wrong way because he did his brother wrong. And notice what he does because he's afraid. We mentioned this two weeks ago. Anytime we act out in fear, we usually do the wrong thing. We need to follow the spirit. We we need to follow what the, the Lord has already told us in his word. But he's afraid, he's fearful, he's shameful. And notice what happens there in verse one. He divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He starts to divide the family to protect them. And notice, and he put the maidservants and the children in front. This is how he divided them. Leah and the children behind. And notice, and Rachel and Joseph last. There he's showing favoritism to Rachel and Joseph. Because if something were to happen, he thought, well, I'm gonna put the maidservants Everyone in front, then I'm going to put Leah after, and then I'm going to put Rachel and Joseph. They'll be at the end so that they have the most probable safety as possible. He starts to now operate in the flesh again. Now think about God's already provided two revelations to Jacob. First in a dream. Then when he went and dislocated the hip out of the socket, he's reminded him, you must be governed by God. Stop trying to solve things on your own. But because he was fearful, he started to act in the flesh. He had no reason to be fearful after God had already reminded him time and time again that he would be with him. And notice what happens there in verse 3 again. Then he crossed over before them, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. What does he do here? He's leaning again on his own understanding. God's reminded him, I need you to submit. I need you to slow down. I need you to follow me. I need you to wait on me. And what does he do there? He goes ahead and he bows to his brother seven times. Now we can easily look at this and find out and think, well, when you're fully submitted to God, you're going to fully submit to one another. And, and maybe that's the approach that we read when we look at it. But notice, he's demonstrating a submission to try to find favor in the eyes of his brother. He's trying to appease his brother. And and he didn't need to do that seven times. God already had reminded him that he was with him. But notice, he's acting out in fear. And when you act out in fear, you'll always be a slave of people. You always think about, what are people saying about me? Are they going to approve of me? What are they going to say if I do something else? He's acting out in fear. He's acting out in shame. And he didn't need to do this. He he, he didn't need to divide his family. He didn't need a scheme or to operate in the flesh. He was focused more on planning than he was on praying. How many times has God called us to do something new? Step out in faith. Obey him. Be obedient. Surrender. Submit. And notice what we do. Instead of putting the emphasis on prayer... We put the emphasis on planning. We put the emphasis on our own work, on our own plans, on our own projects. He starts to divide the family. He starts to bring gifts. He starts to bow down seven times instead of trusting God that he would keep him safe. Instead of trusting God that God's hand was on his life. 
Sometimes we look at Jacob and we say, how could Jacob do that? But we have to look at the word of God like it's a mirror and say, Lord, is that us right now? That instead of depending upon prayer and the spirit and the Lord, we're depending upon our plans, our operation, our own strength now? Because sometimes we're not just like Jacob, sometimes we're even worse. Where we don't pray at all, but we just start to move in the operation of our flesh. And you know what he was doing? He's wanting to get to the promised land. He's wanted to make it now back to Canaan, but he was doing it in the wrong way. You know, it's very common that sometimes we face problems because we're walking towards the will of God, thinking that we need to do it in our own flesh, in our own strength, in our own understanding. God does not need you to sin to help him fulfill his plan in your life. He does not want us to compromise to receive the blessing. Here he's compromising on the way to the promises. Do you see what he's doing here? But notice the unlikely resolution because it begins here with a fearful situation. But then from verses 4 to 11, you see an unlikely situation or resolution. And notice there in verse 4 as it continues, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And he fell on his neck and kissed them, and they wept. Notice what happens here. Jacob thinks, I have a plan. I'm going to divide my family in three groups. I'm going to send gifts. I'm going to send my servants. I'm going to bow seven times. But Esau, notice how he approached them. Esau received him. Esau received him with love. Esau received him with affirmation. And while Jacob was afraid, notice here the love of Esau. Esau ran to him. You know why? Because God had worked in Esau's heart the only way God can. Sometimes we think, well, is there reconciliation possible in this relationship? Can God really bring us together? Can God really do a work? Well, notice God can when he works in the hearts of people. God can work in the heart of that person. You think, well, you know what? They're too far out. They're not going to reconcile with me. They're not going to reconcile with God. They're not going to come back. But notice how Esau goes. God worked in his heart. And instead of being mad at him, notice what he does. Instead of wanting to do evil and conspire against him, all he wants to do is bless him. He hugs him. He receives him. He kisses him. And they weep. This is the sovereignty of God working in the hearts of people. This is what we ought to pray for. Lord, I may not think that there can be a change, but I know you can do a work in their hearts. Lord, I may not see a way possible for us to have unity or reconciliation, but I know that you can work in the heart. Did you know that humility and forgiveness always wins the battle? And here you see humility and willingness and forgiveness winning the battle because of Esau. That here is a man that, that didn't want the spiritual blessing, but God was working in his heart. A change had taken place in his heart. They didn't have to argue about what happened in the past. You notice that? I didn't say that they asked about what happened in the past. It didn't say they had to go talk about it. It didn't say they looked back. Esau wasn't bitter. You know what he did? He moved on. He didn't hold on to the hurt from the past. I think there's sometimes that there's division between people, even brothers and sisters within the family of God, or even within your own family, and you can't even remember why you're mad at each other anymore. It's been so long. <laughs> and you're holding on to past hurt or to past pain where now it's bitterness. 
I love that Esau here demonstrates that, that he didn't become bitter, that, that he did move on, that he's now holding on to the past. You know, when you hold on to the past, there really isn't real forgiveness. When you hold on to the past, there isn't true repentance. God worked in the heart of Esau. In Proverbs 21, 1, it tells us this, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Even those that you think are an authority, those that you think have power, those that you think have the control, you know who's really in control? God is in control. And he holds their, hand, their heart in his hand. It says like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You may not be able to change anyone, and, and that is true because we're just men. We're just people, but you know who can change people? Who can touch the heart of man? God with his spirit. And God had worked in the heart here of Esau. Notice verse 5. And he lifted his eyes, and Esau saw the woman and children and said, Who are these with you? He wanted to ask, Who are all these people? And notice how Jacob responds here to that question. So he said, The children whom God has graciously, he knew that it was God who gave them to him, given your servant. He knew that he didn't deserve it, that he was unworthy, that it was the Lord that had blessed him. But he put himself also in the position of a servant. God has given me this by his grace, not because of anything that I have done. He doesn't try to receive glory for what he has or the family he has. He doesn't want to flex any type of power, but he says, your servant. Do you see here how he's humbling himself before his brother? And then in verse six and seven, it says that his family and his maidservants responded. And then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they also bowed down. Notice what's happening here. He had prepared them. When you see my brother, we are going to try to find favor. We want to find grace in his sight. We want to have him accept us and receive us. He is formulating a plan to try to fabricate and manufacture peace and unity in his own strength. To try to manufacture or earn grace in the eyes of his brother. And you know what his brother does, how he responds? Verse eight, he responds this way now. First he said, who are these that are with you? But now in verse eight, he says, then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? His brother looks at him and says, well, what are you doing? Why did you send all those gifts? Well, what are all those animals that you sent before? Well, what are you trying to do by doing this? I think sometimes the Lord asks us the same question. He sees us trying to please him with our performance. And I want you to know, you will never please God with your performance. The Bible tells us that even the, our best works are like dirty rags. Think about that. You think you have such a good gift? Even the best version of what you have is like a dirty rag before the holy presence of God. It is not what we do that pleases God or that makes us acceptable before God. You know what it is? It's what he's already done for us. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. And notice the answer that Jacob responds with because he says, what are you doing? And in fact, I love that Esau says this because in his mind, he never thinks that Jacob owed him anything. He didn't say, I'm glad you sent gifts because you did me wrong. 
He doesn't feel entitled towards Jacob. In fact, he asks, what are you doing? His mindset was not one that harbored bitterness. So notice what Jacob does as he responds the same way or three times in this chapter. He says the very same thing. And he says this, and he said, these are to find favor. I want you to circle that in your Bible because three times this comes up, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. What is Jacob looking for? He's looking to find favor. He's looking to find grace. We cannot find favor. We can never find grace by our own works. It cannot be earned. Otherwise, it would not be grace. You can't try to earn a gift. If someone gives you a gift and you try to repay them, then it no longer is a gift because you try to pay for it. And here he's saying, I want to earn or I want to find favor. He, he was mixing here, notice this, living by faith, by also living by the flesh. And you can't mix the two. You can't say, I'm going to live by faith this way, but when it comes to these issues, I'm going to live by the flesh. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I think it's important that we realize that the way that we find favor is by simply coming to Jesus Christ. That is how we find favor. You're already forgiven. You do not have to feel guilty. You don't have to live in condemnation. You don't have to live in shame of the past. So many times people, they, they are trying to perform something to cover up what they've committed in the past. That's already been cleansed by Jesus Christ. And here you see here that he's trying to win the favor of his brother. Now notice in verse 9 as it continues, because his brother says this, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. And he says, keep what you have for yourself. I already have enough. There's a peace and there's a contentment. Here's a man that God had dealt in his heart. And you know when God deals with your heart, what are the two things that you have? When God deals with your heart, no matter how fleshly and carnal you have been struggling with different things, or the person may be, two things you see. There's peace and there's contentment. Those are the things that you see in Esau's life. Peace and contentment. What does he say? I have enough. I mean, when's the last time that we said that? I have enough. I don't want it. <laughs> I have enough already. You keep that for yourself. Usually what we're saying is, we don't have enough. Give me what you have. But notice what he said. I have enough. Keep that to yourself. I love what Paul told Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. If, you, if you're godly, if you're seeking the Lord, godliness and you're content and satisfied with him you know what it is it's not just gain it is great gain and notice how he insists here now esau verse 9 and 10 and verse 10 now he says and jacob said no please if i now found favor in your sight this is the second time if i can find favor in your sight receive my gift receive what i'm bringing in my hand now Please accept it now. He wanted his brother's approval. He wanted his brother's validation. I, I want to tell you, there's a big danger in trying to seek the validation in the eyes of people. There's a big danger in trying to seek the validation in man. You know what we should seek? The approval. Seek the approval only in the eyes of God. That way you're not enslaved to man's opinions. 
That way you don't become a people pleaser. You're a, you're, you're a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. And he says, if I have found favor, just please accept this. What is he trying to do? He's insisting. He's insisting to have his way. He's insisting to fix things with his own strength. He's insisting to use his own plan. I think it's important that as we look at this, that we would say, Lord, we don't want to insist. We want to be still and know that you are our deliverer, that the Lord is going to do the work. We don't have to insist. We don't have to push. He, he, what he wants to do here is he's wanting to find relief in that his brother accepts the gift so that he is found acceptable or approved before him. It's amazing as we look at the New Testament and we find that we don't have to do anything to please God. You know what the only thing you have to do? is just come to Jesus Christ. He is pleased in that. He's not pleased in how much you serve him, how much you even come to church. You know what he's pleased in? He wants to know your heart that is fully submitted to him. And notice in verse 11, as he continues, it says this. As we even read the end of verse 10, receive my present from my hand, and as much as I have seen your face, as though I have seen the face of God, he said, I, I, I feel like I've seen the face of God and, and you were pleased with me, that you would accept me as I've been accepted or as if I were accepted by God. In verse 11 again, please take my blessing or my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Now his brother Jacob is also saying, I have enough as well. You take it, please. He's insisting, please take my gift. He wants to appease the time of separation with his own gift. He wants to make sure that he can force something his way. What has God told him? That he would bless him to return to Bethel. That God would take care of it, to take a step of faith, to walk in obedience. He has nothing to fear. But notice the habitual deception in the life of Jacob as it continues because he's still struggling to be the new man he's still struggling to leave the his past behind the old self behind the old man then Esau said verse 12 let us take our journey and let us go and I'll go before you so he finally receives it, he finally agrees and he tells his brother let, let us go back together now let us go back because his brother went to meet him he says, Let, let's go back together. Let's take a, a journey. I'll, I'll go with you. Do you see here his brother's looking for fellowship? How his brother's looking for the reconciliation? He uses the word, let us. Let's do this together. Let's walk together. Do you see that? Let's walk together. Let's walk in fellowship. Let's journey together. But there Jacob again is stubborn. He's saying, no, I want to do my own thing. That's what pride is. Pride is saying, I want to be independent. Pride is saying, I want no accountability. Pride is saying, I want no fellowship. I don't need to walk with anyone. I can do my own thing. I'll be on my own. But that's not how God created us to be. Here his brother tells him, let's walk together. And notice what he uses as excuses, because every time when you're invited into fellowship with God, or you're invited into fellowship with your brothers and sisters, you'll always have a reason to say, well, I can't do that. I can't go. We'll even blame things. We'll use excuses. 
Sometimes we use excuses that are not worth using, and sometimes we use excuses that actually are good things in our life to take us out of that accountability or fellowship because in our heart, there's still a lot of pride. And notice what he says there in verse 13. But Jacob said to him, there's always a but. When you're operating like Jacob, there's always a but Jacob. God wants to do this, but the Jacob in you wants to do something else. God wants you to trust him, but you want to do something else. Let us walk together. Let us walk in fellowship. Let us be together. And notice what happens is habitual deception. It's important that we look at these markers of how Jacob's life is consistently battling with the old self. And he said, my Lord knows he wants to use flattery and deception to steer his own plan to navigate the narrative knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing with me and if men should drive them hard one day all the flocks shall die (laughs) i can't do it my family i can't do it my possessions i can't do it notice what i have If, if i do this notice they're so weak they're so young i can't i can't walk with you i can't be with you If I drive them a little hard, then everyone's going to die. That sounds like the culture that we live in today. If if I give you a little bit of commitment, then I think it's going to be too much for me. I think now we're scared to ask for commitment. Even in the church, I'll tell you, we should not be scared to ask people in church for commitment to serve God. That, That is a reasonable response. He says, I can't go, my family... My possessions, we're so weak. I don't want to drive them hard. He's using excuses to say, I can't, because he wants to get away with doing his own thing. Do you see how he masquerades things? We have to be very careful that we are discerning and that we don't allow the flesh to lie to us. Oh, these are good things. Instead of desiring to walk in fellowship. Oh, these are good reasons. These are good exceptions. These are good excuses. No, ask the Lord, show me so that I'm not selfish, so that I'm not prideful, so that I'm not motivated by fear and doing something lying to myself and to other people. Notice what he says there in verse 14. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children that are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Sierra. What did he say? I'm going to go at my own pace. <laughs> I don't want to go with you. I need to do my own thing. I don't want to go. And notice this. When one says, as two are intending to walk together, and one says, I'm going to do it at a different pace, then they're not walking together anymore. Because here you see there's division. Esau says, let's go together. And he says, no, I want to do it at my own pace. And so he says, I'll meet you on ahead. Just go on without me. And you know what happens? He doesn't really ever show up. (laughs) Because he uses the fact that I'm going to go slower. I'm right behind you instead of beside you. And it's the deception, the program in his heart that that he's saying, I want to do it conveniently. I want to be comfortable. I want to do it my own way. He says, I'll meet you there but he had no real intentions in his heart of going. It was all lip service. It was all on the outside, but in the heart, there was no desire. Do you see that? 
The outward person wants to display an appearance or pretend to say, I'm submitted, I'm going with you. But in the heart, there really is no loyalty. There really no, is no obedience. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me then. All right, if you're going to come, then let me leave some of my servants with you. Let me make sure that you get there safely. I'll leave some of my servants so that they can walk you over on with me since you're saying you're coming. But notice what happens here. But he said, another but here. We have to be very careful. When we pray, when we wait on the Lord, that it would not be but Lord. I'll obey you, but Lord, I don't want to do that. Lord, I'll follow you, but Lord, let me do it at my own pace. Let me do it at my own convenience. Let me do it at my own comfort. And here he says, but Lord, he said, what need is there? Okay, let me accommodate you, Esau says. I'm going to leave some of my servants to help you get there. And he says, no, Lord. What, 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 what reason is there for you to protect and guide me? There is no need. I'm good on my own again. You know what Jacob is constantly struggling with? Wanting to be on his own. <laughs> and when you're on your own as a Christian, I want to tell you that. When you're doing your own thing, you're going to always get in trouble. Because that's what pride and selfishness wants to do. I want to be on my own. I want to do my own thing and still be right with God. You can't do that. That is not surrender. That is not submission. You know what happens when we came to Jesus Christ and we received that free gift of salvation? We, always came, we also came and died at the cross. And we said, Lord, I'm not doing my own thing anymore. I'm doing your thing. It's not my way, it's your way. Instead, in fact, I'm getting out of the way so that you can have your way, Lord. And notice how it continues there in verse 15. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? And then the third time, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, let me find favor. He already had received them warmly. And he said, why is it? Let me just find grace. Let me just find favor. Let me do it my way. You know what this led? This pride to spiritual regression. You may think outwardly you're doing all the works. You're trying to prove yourself. You're performing in a way where you would seem spiritual, but it's not true. It's not real. So there's spiritual regression. Notice the spiritual regression that comes as a byproduct of a life of excuses. If you live a life of excuses, you know what it's going to lead to? Spiritual regression. Here's another word. You're backsliding. Because you live in your entire spiritual walk with the words, but Lord. So what happens? You backslide. Lord, I know you want me to go there. Lord, I, want you, I know you want me to do this. But Lord, I'd like to do this instead. You'll always get in trouble when you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. And when you're at a place where you're not supposed to be at. It's important that we obey God with what he's asked us to do. Notice the spiritual regression there from verses 17 to 20. It says, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth. What happened? I thought he was going to Sayar. In only three verses, you see there, he went somewhere else. He still behaved like the old Jacob instead of the new Israel there. He said he was going to go there. He said that he was going to meet his brother. He said he was going to go to Sayar. And notice where he ends up going. He ends up going to Succoth. 
He journeys there and then he builds himself a house there. He settles there. <laughs> he goes to the wrong place and he starts to now deceive, acting like his old self. And on the other hand, he settles, makes himself comfortable there and he builds himself a house and he made booths or shelters for the livestock. And there he called the name of the place Sukkoth. What does that mean? Shelters or temporary tents. You know, it's important that we look at that because not only did he deceive his brother, but he was also disobedient. He was unwise in that he started to settle in the wrong place. He was outside of God's will. Notice, what did God tell Jacob to do? Well, what is it that he, he told him to do when he told him to go back to the promised land? He said, I want you to go to the promised land and I, and I do want you to settle there. But he came short of full obedience. It's not simply enough to go to the promised land and to be there. You know what a full obedience looked like? Because he told him to return to the place of Bethel. Where was it that God told him to go? I want you to go back to Bethel. Here he's going back to a place of what he wants. Yes, Lord, I'll go back, but I'll settle where I want. But I'll build myself a house of what I want. But I'll do it my way. Genesis 31, 13, a few chapters before the Lord says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now rise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. What's the land that he wanted him to go to? Go back to Bethel. Go back to that place. And there he goes to the wrong place. There he's in the wrong place. You know when you're in the wrong place, what you also are? Outside of God's will. That's the last thing you want to do to be in the wrong place. You know, sometimes people struggle being in the wrong place and they ask God, Lord, take me out of this place. <laughs> but oftentimes you're in a place that God never put you in to begin with. You got yourself there on your own. And notice what happens in verses 18 and 20. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Notice that word safely. It's amazing there when we look at that word because it reminds us that God fulfilled his promises that God protected him, that God was with him, that God said, I'm going to be with you until you make it there. And even though he was acting in the flesh, even though he was struggling with his old self, God still protected him. That's God's grace, that word safely. Yes, he's reckless. Yes, he's prideful. Yes, he's stubborn. Yes, he's doing his own thing. But notice, God is still faithful. He safely got him there. Isn't that amazing that many times we fail the Lord? And we're saying, Lord, but I'm going to take a detour. <laughs> I'm going to go there, but I'm going to take a detour. Have you ever driven a place and gone to somewhere? And, and you know what? You put on the GPS and you're going in one direction. And he says, and, and it shows you, you need to make an exit. But you're saying, I don't need to make an exit. I know how to go on my own way. <laughs> you know, as guys, we don't like to ask for directions, right? And you find yourself taking a lot longer to get to the place where you want it to be because you wanted to get there your own way. It's a very big problem when you want to get to the place that God's called you on your own terms. You do not get to select the destination and you do not get to select the terms and conditions. That comes from the Lord. Notice as we continue reading there, verse 18, safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram. 
and he pitched his tent before the city. There he starts to become comfortable. He doesn't return to his brother. He deceived him. He lied. He wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't being genuine. There was a half-hearted obedience here, you see. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hammer, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. He had to purchase a land when God had already given him one that he wanted him to go to. But you know what he does to compromise, to try to make things right, to try to make up for his wrong? He tries to do a right. <laughs> and he tries to serve. He tries to sacrifice. I think oftentimes as believers, we compromise and then to try to make up for the compromise, we say, well, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. And notice what he does there to try to be on good terms with God. Verse 20 there he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. What does he do? He builds an altar and says El Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel, he calls it. What is he doing? He's declaring that he worshiped the one mighty true God. He was declaring that. But he failed to obey him. He, he didn't want to go to Bethel. There was a half-hearted obedience. You know what we learn there? In, in just one verse... You know what you learned there? That sacrifice is never a substitute for obedience. Please remember that today. Sacrifice is never a substitute for obedience. You would say, well, yes, I'm compromising, but I'm still serving the Lord. Should the Lord not be pleased with me? Well, yes, I'm compromising behind the scenes or in my heart or in my mind, but I'm still serving the Lord. God does not. He is not concerned with what's in your hand. He's concerned about what's in your heart. We see the same thing happen to Saul the king. That he was little in his own eyes at one point, and he received instruction to wait for Samuel, to offer up a sacrifice. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, what happened? He became proud. He got ahead of himself. He was impulsive. He was reckless, all because he was proud. You know what Samuel told him as soon as he got there? He said, why don't you listen to God? You know what he said? Just shut your mouth, he told him. <laughs> what is that sound of what I hear going on? Has the Lord have great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices than in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to what? Sacrifice. Jacob is sacrificing, but he's not obeying. There's a big problem here. The, the altar was good. The altar is good. But complete obedience is better. The altar is good, but complete obedience is better. God wants your obedience first, and then he wants your sacrifice. Well, Lord, I'm serving you. Yes, you are, but you're in the wrong place. <laughs> God wants your obedience, and then he wants your sacrifice. You know what happens because he was there at this place? His family suffered. His family was suffering. He wasted time. He was disobedient in this period of time where he settled in the wrong place. We'll always get in trouble when we're in the wrong place. And Jacob, in this next chapter, he's in trouble as well. What does it teach us? It's very expensive to take a detour in the plan of God. It's very, you know what happens here? His daughter gets raped, and the next chapter, two of his sons becomes murderers because he's not living up to the name that God had given him. Be careful that you are choosing to compromise your conduct 
instead of living a life that is worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's so important that as we look at the life of Jacob, that we'd say, Lord, I don't want to do just outward sacrifices. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to perform. I don't want to just showcase that I'm spiritual. I want to be fully surrendered from the inside. In fact, I want to give you these five points as we end this chapter and this message tonight. That's important that we would keep with us. Number one, be careful of a mindset that thinks that because I'm blessed, I know best. Be careful of a mindset that thinks that because I'm blessed, I know best. You know what Jacob thought? I'm blessed, so I know best. That is not true. Be careful that you don't think that because God's hand upon you is blessing you and using you and his hand is working through you and his grace is upon you, that you know best. It is because of God, and it's not because of you, it's in spite of you. Number two, if pride has been your greatest enemy, if pride is our greatest enemy, then notice this, then humility needs to be your greatest friend. If pride is our greatest enemy as Christians, what needs to be your greatest friend? Humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. It's like 1 Peter chapter 5 that we're reading right now in our daily portion. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. And when? In due time, at just the right time. Number three, be on the lookout for pride, especially after a great spiritual blessing. He saw a great spiritual blessing, Jacob. Once in a dream, the next time when God revealed himself again and he was clinging to him. But notice, there's pride after a great spiritual blessing. God oftentimes will use this in such a great way. There's a spiritual blessing. And you know how the enemy comes and tries to distract and corrupt the work that God did in your life and through your life by sowing seeds of pride in your heart and mind. Be careful for any signs of pride even after, especially after a great spiritual blessing. Number four, no Christian is exempt from regressing spiritually. The greatest mistake that you can do today is to say, well, that happened to Jacob. It'll never happen to me. You're probably already in the wrong place. Be careful because no Christian is exempt from regressing, from backsliding. He's backsliding right here. He thinks he's obeying, but he's half-hearted. And number five, partial obedience always leads to problems. Would you get that? Partial obedience. It's not saying, well, you know what? I'm obeying God on my terms or, or partially. No, it always leads to problems. You know what's awesome as we read this text, as we look at it? That God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Scripture. Even after Jacob's life. What is he called? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's not the God of Israel, he says it, in that generation. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what it tells us, what it highlights? That God is so faithful, and he delights, and he is pleased with saving people whose lives are messed up. <laughs> he still calls himself, I'm still the God also of Jacob. That guy that's struggling, the guy that's consistently going back, the one that keeps failing, he's so loving that he's still the God of Jacob. He doesn't call himself the God of Israel, the God of Jacob still. You know what's awesome here? That those three times, what happens there? 
I want to find favor in your sight. I want to find favor in your sight, that I may find favor. All I, I want is to find favor in your sight. You know what the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, 16? Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace, find favor to help in time of need. Come boldly to the throne. You want favor right now? You want forgiveness? You want grace? You want reconciliation? You want restoration? You want unity and peace? You know what you have to come? Come boldly to the throne of grace. That's how you find favor. You don't have to try to impress God. We can never impress God. You don't have to try to perform. Just come boldly to the throne of grace. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, the door of God's mercy is thrown wide open. And Christ stands in the door and says to sinners, come. Think about that. The, the door of God's mercy, it's wide open. It's not creaked. It is wide open. Christ is standing at the door of God's mercy. And nobody's telling sinners, just come. Just come and he'll freely let us in. If you want more grace, would you stand with me today as we pray? They would say, Lord, would you give us more grace tonight?